The following message is given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com. So Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in, his like, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Move on to verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the hearing and the preaching of his word. In perhaps the most famous story about Sherlock Holmes, a gigantic hound is on the loose in southern England and has killed Mr. Baskerville. Mr. Baskerville's friend who's still living fears that he might be the next victim, so he travels to London to secure the help of Detective Sherlock Holmes and his partner, Dr. Watson. Now, Holmes dismisses the case as nonsense, a hound taking a man out, but agrees to send Dr. Watson there to investigate. Dr. Watson arrives and is terrified when he sees that the hound that has been haunting that town has emerged from the fog, he says. My mind was paralyzed by the dreadful shape which had sprung out upon us from the shadows of the fog. A hound it was, an enormous cold black hound, but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Fire burst from his open mouth. His eyes glowed with a smoldering glare. Its muzzle and hackles and dewlap were outlined in a flickering flame. Never in, this is where you love his writing, never in the delirious dream of a disordered brain could anything more savage, more appalling, more hellish be conceived than that dark form and savage face which broke, broke upon us from the wall of fog. No wonder Watson was terrified. No wonder they fled to London for the help of Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to leave you with a total cliffhanger. Sherlock joins him eventually to solve the case, and the hound turns out to have a natural explanation, although surprising to all who read. So you can go read that later today. In this section of Genesis, we're introduced to another hound the hound of death. Death has been called the great interruption, breaking up our lives and plans. Death has been called the great divide, separating us from friends and family. But this chapter underlines the harsh reality that because of sin, death is a deadly hound coming for each one of us. Not everyone died by the hounds of Baskerville, but no one will escape the hound of death. Death reigns. Death rules. No one escapes his grasp. This chapter is carefully crafted and and carefully captures and catalogs death reign. If you see it at the end of each of these stories of the genealogy, and he died, and he died died and he 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 died. One author says coming to grips with the reign of death defined in this chapter is like unfolding a murder mystery novel in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim. Death reigns. 
And if we, all, if we know we're all going to die, what matters now? What do we do now? Is that all this chapter is placed in our Bibles to do? To just let us live intimidated by death. And many, many just avoid death. Many refuse to talk about it. Many paper over the threat of death by chasing security and money or success or approval. It's so enticing to chase these things, but we must not do it. None of it will hold up. Others deny it. They live for today. They live for now. They live like death's not coming, but we must not do that either. What do we do? Well, tucked into these verses, they're very sobering on death, are three stubborn purposes of God that we must cling to. In a word, death reigns, but the good and glorious purposes of God remain for his people. Death reigns reigns, but the good and glorious purposes of God remain for his people. First point we're going to look at is the good purpose of mankind still continues. The good purpose of mankind still continues. Now, if you notice, this section begins a new section in the book of Genesis. Look down there at 5.1. This is the book of the, of the generations of Adam. So, so that's kind of like a formula that runs 12 times through the book of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of so-and-so. It's not so much saying that this is the story of Adam as much as saying this is the story of Adam's descendants. This is the story of his family, of all the people, all his children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren all the way until we encounter Noah. So this is the story of Adam's seed if we could say it that way. And it, it begins by restating what we've learned. 1B, it says, when God had created man, he made him in his likeness. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So it's reminding us of the creation of what God has done. If you wonder, and, and I do wonder, why is this, this restating of creation come at the beginning of this genealogy, which is just talking about how long a guy lived, when he had his kids, how long he lived after that, and when he died. Well, what the author is trying to say is that even though Adam and Eve rebelled, even though their son Cain killed Abel, even though sin spread to all men and death spread to them as well, the image of God remains the image of God is not destroyed. If you notice the way it tells the story of creation right there, it tells it generically. It's telling us like, this is how all men were made. When God had created man, he made him in this way in his image and likeness. And so the image of God is not destroyed. Now we might think that's obvious, you know, that's like, well, it's a huge deal. Moses was, was uh, trying to write to his original audience to tell him God was not done with what he's doing. Just keep reading and you will see. And we see that outlined again. Look in verse 3. It's using this image and likeness language to tell us that it transfers to Seth. Even though it says child of his offspring, it is still a child made in the image of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, which is in the image and likeness of God after his image and named him Seth. So what it's telling us immediately is that the good purpose of God still continues. All mankind is creating the image and likeness of God. All mankind, as theologians have said over the years, are created, what's that mean? To re uh, reflect and represent him. 
to reflect him. Man is unlike any other creature. There's wonderful creatures out there, but man is totally unique because he's intelligent. He's able to speak and write and do computer code and do different things, build things, make and form and mold. So much greater than what a beaver does when he makes a dam. Man builds brilliant things, awesome things, and you see it everywhere you look. Man reflects God, whether he wants to or not. I remember last year we went to, to Korea on a mission trip. And one of the things that just blew me away about Korea, well, it's just a fascinating place to be anyway because they had a massive war in the 50s and they've just completely rebuilt this country in 70 years. It's just unreal. Talk about the power of a free economy, but that's not the point of this sermon, so I won't go into that. But it's amazing. One of the things that blew me away was there were just different points where they did things really well just because they could. At one point, we were going south in Korea, and we went through a tunnel. I think it was like six miles long, something like longest tunnel I've ever been in. I did not hold my breath because I would not be here. And we went through this tunnel, and the rumble strips, you know, they put rumble strips down the middle of the road, and the rumble strips, as you went over them at the miles per hour that was required, it played, it, it hummed, twinkle, twinkle, little star. What? Somebody took a lot of time. I was like, what is going on right now, you know? The rumble strips are singing, you know, the heavens declare, and so do the rumble strips. That God makes everything beautiful. God was created, man, to represent him, to reflect him and to represent him, to be fruitful and multiply. Even this, this genealogy tells us how Adam took up this command. I mean, we got 10 generations right here. He was fruitful and multiplied. So what it's saying, despite sin and death, the good purpose of mankind continues. Even though death cuts short life, death, uh, uh, life still has incredibly good purposes. So don't throw it out. If I could say it another way, Humankind, mankind is still valued by God. I don't know about you, when I come to genealogy in the Bible, I'm like, oh man, I need another cup of coffee. You know, I, start, I just want to speed through that and get to the good stuff again, you know, numbers is always a challenge. But why does the Bible include so many genealogies? So many long lists of names. One reason is because each person is valued by God. But did you notice that Cain doesn't even get a mention? He's a son of Adam. Jabel, Jubal, Tubal Cain that we talked about last week, the fathers of agriculture, art, and music, science, these culture makers, these, you know, these men that their names would be in the lights and in the Britannica, the encyclopedias. They don't even get a mention here. Aren't they using their, their, their God-given talents, their image-bearing talents? But what it's saying subtly, many of the things we value do not make us valuable to God. Many of the things we value, Cain doesn't even get a mention because the things that the culture often values, no, they're not valuable. They don't make us valuable to God. Counselor David Pallison helped me see this years ago when I took his class. He, he said, we're all different people. I can look in this room. We can look at one another. We're all different. The Bible presents differences as just kind of a horizontal range 
of the way humans look and act. You know, some of us rich, poor, tall, short, strong, weak, beautiful, plain, able, disabled, talented, untalented, masters, servants, old, young, healthy, sick, male, female. Differences are a reality in the world God has made. We're not all stormtroopers, you know? There's massive differences. It's like the hand that you're dealt in a game of cards. Differences are part of God's good design, a part of, part of the way we display what he values more than all of us looking the same and having the same thing. He values diversity, unity, beauty. He devours complexity and ranges. You know, he, devour, or he, 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 he values these things. But these horizontal differences become a problem when we turn them into ladders and buy into a false value system. Let me give two examples. We chase after riches. We climb the ladder. We acquire wealth. We feel better about ourselves because we're not poor like those people down there. But we still are intimidated by those people up there. What's even worse, we think that we're more important and valuable than God because of how far we climb, climb. But it's a ladder to nowhere. Like it's not going anywhere. Not wrong to make money, obviously, but it becomes a ladder to nowhere when we chase it. Or we chase beauty. We climb the ladder. We chase after a certain size, body shape, certain body fat content, a certain look. We feel better when we're better than others. But when that new person comes, who's a little more fair than we are, we're intimidated. In the old days, when you're old, you just looked old, but not anymore. <laughs> seems to be a prevalent temptation among women. David Pallison said, I'm quoting him, not quoting myself. When it comes to women, God seems to prefer the pear shape. But women will have none of it. Obviously, the pear shape is for childbirth. But women, many women will have none of it. They spend their life trying to whittle off the size of the pear. It's not wrong to work out and count calories, but when we chase beauty, it's a ladder to nowhere. It's not valuable to God. It's empty. It's pointless. It does not matter. It doesn't make us any more acceptable. Many of the things we value do not make us valuable to God. And Scripture has a way of knocking down the ladders. <laughs> Just come push the ladder out of the things we're chasing. And this chapter is one of them. So many of the things we value do not make us valuable to God. But the lives of the people of God are so valuable to Him. That's what this thing is saying. That's what this genealogy is making clear. That's what these genealogies and scriptures make clear. People die and are quickly forgotten by the community around them, but God writes their name down so that you would know he doesn't forget. Names matter to God. People matter to God. The same is true for you. You matter to God, not because of how rich you are, or beautiful you are, or strong you are, or talented you are. You matter to God because you belong to him. He knows your name. Dale Carnegie said, name is the most beautiful sound in the world to someone. God knows your name. 
He's written it on the palm of his hands, Isaiah 49. He's written it in the book. He's written your name in the book of life. He's acquainted with all your, de- all your ways, Psalm 139. And it's written down all of your days, even on your worst days, your most challenging days. God gathers up all your tears into his bottle. So history is not a succession of meaningless generations. It is a story of the people of God living under the providential care in the times and seasons where he has placed them. Death reigns, but one stubborn purpose of God that remains is his good purpose. Point two, the offer of, fe- the offer of fellowship with God still stands. The author of fellowship with God still stands. Now, the genealogy continues. Adam fathers Seth. Seth fathered Enosh. Enosh fathers Kenan. Kenan fathers Mahalel. Mahalel fathers Jared. Jared fathers Enoch. And the writer pauses here. Look in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not he didn't die. God took him. Studying a genealogy, when, you, when studying a genealogy, it's important to note the pattern, which is what we see here. So-and-so lived so many years, had a child, lived so many years, and then died. But it's important to note when the pattern is broken. There's a break here with Enoch. One author says, this paragraph shines like a brilliant star above the earthly record of the chapter. We noticed last week that the seventh son of Adam through Cain was Lamech, who was the essence of godlessness. And the seventh son of Adam through Seth was Enoch, who was the essence of godliness. But what exactly is the character of his godliness? Twice it says he walked with God. A phrase only used three times in the Old Testament, twice in this section, one for Enoch and one for Noah. It, it doesn't mean the same thing that other phrases like walking before God and walking after God mean. Those phrases are used in other parts of Scripture. Uh, walking before God, walking after God are a way of talking about someone's ethical behavior, a way of talking about their conduct, the way they live, uh, a way of saying they act like God. But this phrase, walking with God, is not referring to someone's obedience to God. Their conduct before God is referring to someone's relationship with God. Walking with God is describing the most, uh, the closest personal relationship and fellowship with God. A hand-in-hand relationship with God. Did you notice that Enoch did not live, he walked with God. Look in verse, look back there. When he had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. Now, if you're following the pattern, look in verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived. (laughs) But in verse 21, when Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked Enoch is doing something more than merely living. He's 
walking with God. Alan Ross helpfully says here, the expression became a commonplace description of the life and fellowship and obedience with the Lord as if to say that walking with the Lord is a step above mere living. A step above, a communion with the Lord that's a step above, a relationship with him such that you love what he loves, hate what he hates, mourns what he mourns, long for what he longs for. It's this relationship that is stunning. And did you notice Enoch not only did not live, he did not die. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, he didn't die. I kill. For God took him. <laughs> he merely transferred to the kingdom of heaven, changed his address. How'd he go? You know, this is the question you want to know. Gosh, what, this is all we have. How did he go? He knocks in a couple places in the Bible. Chariots of fire like Elijah. Man, that would be awesome. Beamed up to heaven, raptured, suddenly. Walking along, he's gone. One thing we know, he walked with God all the way there. I love this little poem. Look at this. Enoch crossed the gap another way. He changed his pace, but not his company. Amazing. Amazing. But why does Moses tell us about Enoch in this chapter about death? Why does God preserve his story in a word so that we would long to walk with God like him? So that we would know that the author offer of fellowship with God still stands a relationship that raises us above mere living and raises us into the life to come is still stands the life and faith of Enoch if I could take the words from Hebrews 11 still speak his death doesn't speak but his life still speaks what it says is true religion has always been about a relationship with God you know I think this little window into the Old Testament faith is meant to kind of shatter the categories for us we tend to think that the Old Testament saints just kind of sin and die obey and be okay that's not it that's not the essence of their relationship that's not the essence of these guys relationship their relationship is no less than ours is walking with God but we see this more clearly when Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except for me it's helping us to see that Christianity is not about getting you to mind your p's and q's definitely not about you giving God one hour of the week Christianity is about a person Jesus Christ who wants to be friends with you who wants to know you who wants to bear your burdens be the center of your life to walk with you have you ever noticed that in 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 Matthew 7 uh, that, that Jesus describes the judgment of just the righteous in terms of relationship we have it for you. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Sorry, I'm going fast. But 
And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. That most personal and intimate word. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. I never knew you. It's a relationship word. Christianity is not a mantra, a slogan, an opiate. It's not a code of conduct or a way of life. Kind of like the Mennonites. They have a way of life that you can export and take into your life. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a person. You can know all the Bible stories, all the sorts of things, for, and do all sorts of things for the Lord, but if you do not know him, if your heart has not been transformed by him to want him more than anything else, if you do not possess the fruit of walking with him, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, no matter what your rap sheet and resume says. And so I offer you Jesus Christ. There's nothing I want more for this church to realize than this reality that Christianity is not a few things that float around your brain as you walk through your day and maybe offer a prayer between things. It's, it's about a person who wants to know you and walk with you and love you, fill your heart with the love that he has for you. This, this past week, I experienced my 22nd spiritual birthday. Uh, some of you... Praise God, don't remember a day when you pass from darkness to life. That's what I, my prayer is for my children and for you, all the children of this church. But I remember, I remember. I was walking, tracing the names and the people and the situations and the things that unfolded. One of the things I like to say to the Lord is, I didn't start this. <laughs> I wasn't looking for him. He came after me, stormed after me, protected me from countless crushing of my life and myself to bring me to himself. I can tell you 20 years later, there's no one else like him. There's nothing else like him. You take everything from me. But if I have this one, And one of the things I feel like I'm saying again and again as I get older is if it's a relationship, then make me more tender. Make my conscience more tender. You know, sometimes we think about the weak conscience people like, oh my goodness, geez. That's what I want. I want the Lord to just nudge. And I go, Make me tender, Lord, because I want this relationship. You know, the author offer of fellowship with God still stands, but in the line of Adam and Seth, only Enoch walked with God in this way. Now, this is a sobering truth, but it is true biblically. God does not walk with seekers and non-seekers in the same way. God does not walk with seekers and non-seekers. You ignore God. He's not going to walk with you in this way. God freely, though, freely, freely, freely gives himself to all who ask, seek, and knock for those who will settle for nothing less. For that reason, I love our Enoch friends, and I thank God for them. This is your verse. Most of all, I think this is your life, and that spurs me on. And so much. There are a few things more. I could go on and on, but I can't. There are a few things more important than cultivating a hunger for God. 
everything that passes before us is cultivating hunger, hunger for new socks, hunger for new shoes, whatever. All these, it's teaching you to hunger. Well, God wants your hunger to be after him. He wants you to long for him. And we all know that anger, drunkenness, pornography are enemies to hungering for God. But the greatest enemies for the people of God might not be what we think. John Piper gives us a little rebuke. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, mom and dad, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a new house, new farm, a yoke of oxen and a wife. That's a parable. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. For when they, these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable, so you don't see what's going on, and almost incurable. So watch out, Dr. Piper would say, make war. Death reigns, but the good and glorious purposes of God remain for his people. The author of fellowship still stands. Point three, the promise of God still endures. Each verse in this genealogy is leading us to Noah, tracing the line of Adam all the way to Noah, and the genealogy just keeps humming along after Enoch. Enoch fathers Methuselah. Methuselah fathers Lamech. Lamech fathers Noah. Look at verse 28. For when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one brings us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I love it. The Lamech... Through the, through the line, sorry, this stuff is interesting. The Lamech, through the line of Cain, sees wrong and takes revenge. Remember? Inflicted 77-fold. But the Lamech, through the line of Seth, sees wrong and hopes in God. This is a verse we need so badly. I, we refuse to go through, we must refuse to go through the motion, be like Lamech, to look to God, to long for God, to bring deliverance, crying out to him. Now, now God call, or, or Lamech calls him Noah, which sounds very similar to comfort. Then he says, out of the ground, this one will bring us relief from our work and the painful toil. I want us to be like Lamech. I want us to long for true relief, true deliverance. What's he talking about? He's talking about the curse, the painful toil, the, the ground biting back at us, and he's crying out for relief. He's hoping in God. And that's what we desperately need. Right now as a church, we have been afflicted by disease. I believe God's calling us to hope in him. Everything else is dust and ashes. Greg Johnson battling mesothelia cancer. Just took his third round of chemo on a three-week rotation. Janet Ham battling aggressive breast cancer for the third time. Completed her 
chemo, awaiting the next appointment, crying out to God for no more cancer. Sarah Jaquish battling leukemia, hard, weak, and a long bout. Jenna Barbie battling inflammatory breast cancer, traveling to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas this week. What's our hope? We, we obviously, we want immediate relief. We want cancer to work. I mean, we want chemo to work, other treatments to work. But our hope is so much greater than that, and we're longing for a world made new. So we're going to pray for these individuals after the message, if I can get done soon. But I want to ask you to pray and fast with me, with us on Wednesday for this moment. I do think the Lord's, sometimes I'm a dope, but I do think the Lord's getting our attention to be a people that hope in Him, that weep with one another, cry out with one another, carry one another. So please do that with us on Wednesday. The relief that the world needs is far more serious than Lamech seems to realize. As, as the man continues, the wickedness of men and women continue to increase as well. The sons of God, Genesis 6-2, come down and take daughters of men as their wife took anyone they choose. Who are these sons of God? Now, this is a $64,000 question. Who's the Nephilim? Who are these guys? You know, some people say they're wicked sons of Cain. I don't think that's right for a number of reasons. Some say they're sons of Seth. I don't think that's correct either. Some say unknown kings because it talks about them reigning later on or men of renown, mighty men. Some people say that. I think the best option, the best solution, the best interpretation for this little bit of evidence we have on these guys is fallen angels. We, 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 uh, that would explain the reference to sons of God, sons of divine beings, which is what angels are, as well as uh, uh, the, the nature and the connection with sons of God and, and, uh, and, or with angels and with Noah and Peter twice and in other places in the New Testament. But the most important thing about this text is not who these sons of God were, but what they tried to do. They rebelled against God. Look in verse 6-2. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took all their wives, took their wives, any they chose. Now, saw, good, took. Where, where do you remember seeing that? Saw something, saw something good, and they took it. It's meant to be immediate reference back to the garden when the woman saw the food that was good and beautiful and took it. And so it's just a reference to these guys attempting to assert themselves above God, just like the woman. So it may have been this fallen angel's mission to try to exert themselves against God and God judges them and says they'll all pass away in 132 years, not talking about limiting the lifespan, but the cumulative effect of all these guys are going to pass over in 120 years. So he's gracious even in his judgment. After all this, the Lord saw the wickedness of man clearly. Sons of man saw the beautiful daughters and took whichever one they wanted. The Lord saw 
the wickedness of man's heart. Look at verse 5. He said, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. There's no more extensive statement of the depravity of man in all of Holy Scripture than this. He saw that the wickedness of man was, was great. It's talking about the intensity of his wickedness. So great and not great, great and, and puny. Uh, 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 talking about intensity. So the intensity of his wickedness was great. But he was also inward. It was in every intention of the thoughts of his heart. So it was in the imaginations of his hearts and the ways of his life. And it was absolute. So this wickedness was absolute. It was only evil. So it was great. It was in the heart. And it was absolute, only evil. And it was great in the heart, absolute, and evil continually. It never stopped. And then it just says, what became of the world that God had made? Well, the Lord regretted that he made man. Did God change his mind? No, the Lord doesn't change his mind. He's expressing his sorrow in a way that we can understand. He's saying this regrets him. He brings judgment, but Noah finds favor. Why does Moses catalog the genealogy of Adam to Noah and then follow it with this picture of the wickedness of men? Why? Why the catalog from Adam to Noah, very intentionally placed, and then followed by the, the wickedness of man, the most serious passage on the depravity of man in all of Holy Scripture. Why? Because salvation for this people will only come by the promise of God. It's a most vital contrast meant to drive us to God alone. Salvation will only come through the promise of God. Noah's not commended because of his life. Noah's commended because of grace found him. Salvation will come by grace alone. It will be a salvation through judgment, as we'll see in the next two weeks. But it is a salvation by grace nonetheless. Death reigns. But the good and glorious purpose of God remains. As we march forward through Genesis, through a world under the shadow of the fall, through a world filled with wickedness and evil, another hound is emerging. Not like the hound of Baskerville. The hound of heaven. That's what this is about. It's helping us to get the outline of this hound. He begins to emerge. He's promised in the garden. He is preserved through Seth. He'll be protected through Noah and the ark. He'll be provided through Abraham. He'll be delivered through Moses, promised to David, born of Mary. The hound of heaven is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these names is leading their way so that we find our place in this hound who hunts down not in the temples and cathedrals, but in the highways and the byways and the pits and the ashes and the lost places and the addiction centers. That's who he's going after. Praise God. That's who he finds. But let us run to him. Cling to him. Let me pray.
Father in heaven, we throw ourselves at your feet. We offer ourselves to you sincerely and completely. Our lives are yours. We belong to you. We've been bought with a price. Our longing is to glorify God. But we pray, I pray that you'd pour out the spirit on this people. We'd knit our hearts together. One body, one spirit, joined together in this season. But all that is before us is under your providential hand. So we do not fear. But we do not want to be found silent. We cry to you. We cling to you. We hide in you. We call to you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com.